I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Turn on, tune in, and block out the rest of the world. My name is Justin Hamilton, and you're connected to Big Squid. It's episode three of season three, so I'm bringing you three guests to celebrate this magical number. Before we get into that, I can smell toast. You know, you've hit a certain point in your age when smelling toast is a moment that makes you think, oh, fuck, this could be it. Or someone's just making toast in the apartments around here. Anyway, hopefully we'll be able to get through this intro and uh, to the rest of the show. Uh, first up, we have one of my oldest pals on the comedy circuit, Limo, who is going to talk to us about why he believes non-sports fans enjoyed the Michael Jordan documentary. And then he'll give us a recommendation for another sports doco that we might like to check out, especially if you're not necessarily a fan of sports, but maybe you're one of those people who did enjoy The Last Dance. So this is an opportunity to find something in that uh, wheelhouse. Then Cal Wilson returns with her segment, My Proudest Shame, and Alexi Toliopoulos and I review the latest Judd Apatow movie, The King of Staten Island. And if that isn't enough, I'm also going to share with you my thoughts on an album from 1973 that has become my latest obsession. That's right. I decided when I was going weekly with Big Squid, I would uh, do shorter and more regular episodes. And I have a feeling this is a long episode. Anyone who was a fan of uh, The Shelf, the show that I used to uh, book, well, you know that I like to give value for money. Or... Don't know how to edit. Probably you don't know how to edit. Actually, even my last show was three different shows all wrapped into one. Yeah, it's probably all about editing, isn't it? Anyway, 
a lot to get through with this podcast. Uh, but before we do, I just wanted to take a moment to give a quick shout out to my dear friends Nick and Ruby who run Factory Espresso in Orange. They not only brew delicious coffee, but also have a breakfast menu that will overwhelm you with tasty choices. And on top of all of that, they put on one of the best comedy shows in Australia, which I hope will start up again in the not-too-distant future. Anyway, if you are near Orange or happen to be driving by this weekend, I know it's a very specific area that I'm talking about in Australia, but if you're doing that this weekend, which is the first weekend in August, if you pop in and say to Nick, bingo, he'll give you a free coffee of your choice. Why bingo? Why not? If you really take him by surprise and make him laugh, he'll throw in an I Love Orange mug as well. So... We all know that times are tough, so I just wanted to take this opportunity to celebrate and support the small businesses that keep the towns thriving. So once again, if you're down Orange Way on the 1st or 2nd of August, pop into Factory Espresso and give Nick and Ruby a hearty bingo for a free coffee of your choice. Now... It's time for me to reveal to you my latest obsession, which is Brian Ferry's debut solo album, These Foolish Things. In the early days of quarantine, I decided there was only one way to keep any level of sanity, and that was to feed the intellect. Keep the brain active, keep working on projects and ideas, and when everything returns to normal, well, there's just the smallest of hopes I won't have gone completely bonkers. So I didn't see anyone I knew for just under 10 weeks, and one of the projects that kept me busy was Season 2 of Big Squid. Uh, If this is where you started, you can go back. Season 2 is where I went solo and covered David Bowie's final album, Black Star. And while I was doing my research, there was an article I read about the punk movement in the late 70s, which I found truly fascinating. It turns out the UK punks turned on the majority of musical acts except for two. One was David Bowie, and the other was Roxy Music. Now, I've always known Roxy Music. I like quite a few of their songs, actually, but I just recently rewatched Lost in Translation. And you know, it has that wonderful karaoke moment where Bill Murray sings Roxy Music's more than this. So with that idea of their music in my head, I couldn't quite reconcile the relationship with the punk movement. So since I was in isolation and not seeing anyone, I decided I was going to listen to all of Roxy Music's albums from 1972 onwards. Now, I have a lot of thoughts on that. I'll save that for another podcast. That is a tour de force for me to dig into. But what I wanted to talk to you about specifically was after I'd listened to all of their albums, I dug into the discography a little bit further and I became fascinated with the solo career of Brian Ferry, which which kind of runs parallel Like, I know he's the lead in Roxy Music, but he kind of steps out and then he makes solo albums and then he kind of makes the solo albums with members of Roxy Music. It's all very confusing. But his first album was an album called These Foolish Things, which was released in 1973. And the whole album is made up of cover songs that span all the way from the 1930s to the 1960s. So when you look back at 1973, it's an interesting period in pop music history as the art form found itself in quite a reflective mood. In the previous 12 months, artists like Elvis Presley and Chuck Berry had just re-entered the charts. You had movies like American Graffiti playing at the cinema, which speaks to a very specific 
era and specific music. And there was a whole bunch of cover albums released that year, including Harry Nilsson's A Little Touch of Schmilson in the Night, John Fogarty's The Blue Ridge Rangers, and David Bowie's Pinups. And while most of these cover albums have a particular focus, what Ferry achieves on these foolish things is quite remarkable, because what he does is he breaks down the barriers between music that is considered high and low art. So as far as Ferry is concerned, trivial music can achieve new heights, and artistically brilliant songs can use just a little humour. So as an example, that first track you heard a snippet of at the beginning of this little little piece was the opener to the album, which was Bob Dylan's A Hard Rain's A Gonna Fall. And critics and music historians have interpreted the lyrics as being about everything from when a young person wants to leave home for the first time, to the Cuban Missile Crisis, to a metaphoric end that looms in your future. Heavy stuff, right? But Ferry, at certain points, mixes in his cover the type of sound effects that you might find on a breakfast radio show. And at first it might sound like he's turning the song into a pastiche, but that's a dismissive reading of this cover. This is Ferry in full swing, his lounge room act finding new ways to present the Dylan song. Just because he adds some levity doesn't mean the song is reduced in any way. To kind of get your head around the Brian Ferry act, take a little listen to his recording of the Rolling Stones' Sympathy for the Devil. The song in particular sums up the Brian Ferry approach to the album perfectly for me. Like, here he is, the perfect kind of Satan, wearing his tuxedo like his old world charm, smoothly winning over the tediously jaded and converting them to the simple pleasures of having fun. You can kind of imagine a Neil Gaiman-esque devil effortlessly displaying his continental cool while packing out his residency at the Las Vegas casino of his choosing. He looks like he doesn't care, that he's just having fun with his backup girls and band. But don't mistake the act for someone you can get one over. As we always know, never cross the devil, especially when he's in performance mode. So on the one hand, we get songs by Dylan and the Stones, but then Brian Ferry throws curveballs. We also get tracks like this, a cover of Leslie Gore's It's My Party. Like as an example, Elvis Costello's cover of the Dusty Springfield track, Anyone Who Had a Heart, has a different tone of tragedy coming from the male perspective. And inversely, Fiona Apple's cover of Costello's I Want You does the same thing, but for the opposite gender. And there's something magical about covering a song without changing the gendered approach to the lyrics, which means you kind of find new meanings and feelings in the words. And here, Ferry not only adds a male approach to his version of this song, but it's also a grown-up's take. It's a grown man singing from the perspective of a girl who was 16. And there's a campy vibe that we can all agree is hilarious. And problematically, we've probably witnessed it at times in some of our supposedly grown-up friends. Also, I think the line, it's my party and I'll cry if I want to, is one of the all-time perfect pop lyrics. And it deserves to be treated with respect alongside the verbose lyrics of the male stars of the 60s. There are so many great covers from the Beach Boys' Don't Worry Baby to the Miracles, the Tracks of My Tears. My favourite song on the album is the penultimate track by The Four Tops. It's Ferry's cover of Loving You Is Sweeter Than Ever. This is the penultimate track on side two. In many ways, it feels like the climax of the album. 
And then when you think you're done, Ferry hits us with one final song, These Foolish Things, which feels intimate with Ferry singing to us after everyone has left the venue. The lights have been turned on, the bar staff are beginning to clean up and the sticky dance floor is covered in spilled drinks, balloons and streamers. It's the perfect closer to a perfect album, a self-assured masterpiece that never wavers from its approach or tone. These Foolish Things marries high art with low art, at a time when this was considered quietly subversive as he pushed back against the snobbery of serious critics. And also, the album's just fun, and fun is a really good thing in these times, don't you think? It's always a delight to discover an album regardless, no matter how new or old it is, and Brian Ferry has always been at his best when you can't tell if he's playing his image straight or with a mischievous glint in the eye. I think lockdown was challenging in many ways for me and for you, but one of the positives was that I had time to find this album. If you haven't heard it before, give it a listen and let me know what you think on our Big Squid Facebook page. If you're a fan of this album, I want to hear from you too. Maybe you've lived with this album for decades and so you have a different take on it. So I'm curious to know what you think as well. And if you do love it, tell me why. I want to know. I'm really curious. I know why I loved it. I've tried to give you a sense of it. I'll put it up on the Facebook page. So there's a, I think you can get the whole album on YouTube. Otherwise, you can find it on Spotify as well. Brian Ferry's These Foolish Things is a collection of songs that will linger long after you've removed your dancing shoes and you're lying alongside a loved one. Or maybe you're just sitting alone watching the shadows spread across the walls as you say goodnight to another day. Either way, this is a beautiful album. It's a fun album, and I really recommend it, especially if you're looking for something to take your mind off the world. During lockdown, the Michael Jordan doco The Last Dance aired and was a massive hit all around the world. I've been a bit curious as to some of my friends who really got into it, who A don't follow basketball, and B, don't even follow sport. So I've asked my old pal Limo to join me to discuss why it was such a hit and what he would recommend next for anyone looking for a new documentary to fill that hole. So you're in the middle of uh, the Melbourne lockdown, and Mm. I haven't seen you for a while, and uh, I'm curious to know what you think of... Uh, my presentation because you've you've got some serious hair and beard, Grizzly <laughs> Adams shit going yeah, yeah. on that I was not expecting. I know I haven't shaved since lockdown one, so oh really? Yeah, although I have trimmed a little bit on the sides because it was growing out, yeah. which is making me look like I had a really fat uh, head or some serious swelling yeah. that needed to be dealt with. Yeah, so I've trimmed a little bit up the top on the cheeks, but other than that, it's. It's just uh, wild and fresh from the start of lockdown one. Are you are you enjoying that, or is it you know because it kind of gives you permission to just yeah let yourself go a little bit? It really does. <laughs> so I am quite enjoying having a massive beard. Although what I've discovered because we're all wearing face masks now is right. that because I've got a massive head to start with. Plus, I've got a beard on top of that. Oh, here we go. He's bragging again. (laughs) (laughs) So whenever I find a hat that fits my head, I buy it, right, because it's that that rare that that happens. So (laughs) I I own two hats. So (laughs) so I've got a beard and a massive head, so I bought a face mask, but it's so tight that it pulls my ears forward 
So I've got two massive oh, wing nut. So I look like Adam Gilchrist or Prince Charles right. when I've got yep. my, my face mask on. Uh, judging by uh, where the royal family is these days, Adam Gilchrist, oh, that's what you want to look like, right? <laughs> I look like Prince Andrew. No, no. Okay, let's hear no, it. No, Let's just... go with Adam Gilchrist. Uh, and... Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? The uh, and I'm I'm guessing with the the mask on the beard. Yeah, does that make the mask less effective? Uh I don't really know. But the mask, I'll tell you a few things about the mask. One, it ruins facial recognition on your phone. So right. this is, I mean, is that a first world problem? They I don't must. know. They have phones in the third world. That and and face masks. So. Yeah. Well, that's where they make them. <laughs> that's where they make them. <laughs> so Sorry. it ruins. And my question is. Can you redo your facial recognition to include a face mask? And would it work? Well, it's well, it's funny that you say that because I've seen people legitimately complaining about that, and I I think well, <laughs> it must be awful to have to remember your six digit <laughs> pin to put in every time you open your phone. It can take forever. Yeah, yeah. The phone yeah. that now has my entire banking system is on my like. Yes, life couldn't be life couldn't be more convenient. And that that's in that regard. And that six digit pin takes about two seconds. So yeah, uh, I won't get too bogged down in that. Uh, you become very aware of your own breath because you're constantly breathing. Oh, yeah. You're constantly breathing into your own face. Um, yeah, and that right. is that is deeply unpleasant. This could be good for people who have bad breath <laughs> and never no one's ever told them. Right. Oh my god, what a good uh, opportunity for <laughs> you to suddenly realise. Oh. People didn't think my ideas were bad. I just have halitosis. I just smell real bad. So, yeah, you become very aware of your breath back in your own face and also you become very judgmental of people who don't wear masks. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, well, I did my first gig since the beginning of March last night at Giant Dwarf in Sydney and the – the staff were fantastic. You know, they were, they checked everybody's temperature walking in. Yep. There was hand sanitizer. You know, people had to sit in very specific places. And all the staff were wearing masks and they were great. And at one point, one of the people working there who's, who's wearing a mask sneezed and uh, like, <laughs> ducked like a gunshot went off. So funny. I, I was at the park the other day and Kel sneezed. My wife, Kel, yeah. at the park. And I saw people 50 metres away snap around yeah. really quick to see yeah. what was going on with yeah. the sneezer at the park. Oh, no, not the <laughs> mate. It's uh, the, the lone <laughs> sneezer behind the grassy knoll. There's a bloody sneezer down at the park. It's not on. <laughs> Let's get out of here. No. And I've also, uh, I've also been imagining, because most people have those blue kind of medical masks, the right. face masks that most people are wearing. Yep. I just... To entertain myself, I imagine that everyone I see with one of those masks on is a dentist on their way home from work, and I just try and imagine how their day was in my head based on their general look, and if I'd be happy to have that person as my dentist. Yeah, right. You know, it's it's, it's like the person who leaves the office with the lanyard on. (laughs) Yes. And they've gone home with their mask on. (laughs) That's right. That's funny. And you know, a lanyard, there's something about a lanyard, it really empowers people. People have a real sense of importance as soon as they put a lanyard on. And I think there's a real sense of, uh, there's a real sense of pride with the mask wearing. 
in Melbourne at the moment. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I found up here in Sydney when, you know, deep into isolation and there was a lot more mask wearing going on. Uh, the thing that I found really interesting was you started to get so used to it that you developed an aesthetic for who you found attractive with a mask. <laughs> yes. Oh, they look quite nice. They've got nice eyebrows. <laughs> I like her forehead. That would be. I wonder what's going on with her. <laughs> and Wendy, and then you ask them out and then they finally reveal. They've got, yeah. they've got one tooth. <laughs> it's like, what went wrong? What happened what here? Happened? The uh, I had a friend of mine who... Uh, Asked me recently, like only about a week ago, so I said, "Hey, uh, how's how's dating going?" And I was like, "It's a pandemic. <laughs> it, it's who's, it's not going. Who's dating? Seriously, yeah. mate? How big would your wallet have to be? You'd have to have your condom. You'd have to have your mask. You'd have to have your hazmat <laughs> your, your suit, sanitizer. <laughs> your sanitizer. All right, I'm ready. Oh, I'm. Um, you finished? Okay. Well, guess what." What do you? We were probably not going to be able to feel this anyway. <laughs> Is there just some sort of body condom now that people are going to have to start wearing oh, on the first date? That's so funny. That re- you know what that reminds me of the, that scene in Naked Gun where they put on full body <laughs> yes. condoms and just rub up and down against each other. <laughs> Fuck, that's funny. Hmm. Always a good day when you get to remember Frank Drebin. Yeah, exactly. Unfor- uh, unfortunately, <laughs> OJ Simpson was very good in in those films as well. Uh, you know, it's, uh, I remember, you know, you watch the Naked Gun movies and then OJ ruins it. And then you watch the very funny movie Dodgeball and oh, Lance Armstrong uh, uh, ruins <laughs> yes. it. And you're just sitting there going, Kareem, do not fuck up flying high. <laughs> Whatever you do. You do. Come on, Kareem. Oh, oh, that's I want to still love Roger Murdoch. Oh, that's funny. Of course he was in flying high. Gee, he did a few yeah. films, didn't he? Because he did Enter the Dragon, of course, with Bruce Lee. Was it Enter the... Cream, yeah. No, 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 he did uh, Game, a of, Game Death. of Death. That's right. Which they kind of put together after Bruce Lee after died. After he died, yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's got that infamous scene where he kicks Bruce when he's wearing that, uh, you know, that beautiful yellow jumpsuit yeah. that Uma Thurman wears as a homage in Kill Bill. Yeah. Kareem kicks Bruce in the chest and then leaves... A seven foot six footprint <laughs> on Bruce's tiny body because yeah. he'd have to be a size twenty shoe, Kareem. I would have thought. Oh, it'd be. It would. So, you know, when I used to live with the uh, Australian basketballer Brett Wheeler, yes. and and people used to come over to our place, and he'd be off on, uh, you know, tour uh, or playing yeah. games interstate. And my friends and I just used to love getting trashed and putting on his size 16 <laughs> shoes and running around the house in these boats. Look at us. We're massive. <laughs> that is good fun. Uh, the biggest shoe ever, just because I can't help myself. Uh, yeah. Robert Wadlow, the tallest man ever, yes. was a size yes. 37 AA in the shoe area. Jeez. That's a, so imagine yeah. Wheeler times two. Add that's an expensive shoe too. Like that, they, that's the thing that people don't think about. All this, all that stuff's expensive. It's expensive, but Robert Wadlow was an ambassador for a shoe brand in America, so he got all his oh, shoes for free. Right. Oh, <laughs> that guy would have lived in poverty otherwise, <laughs> or in a shoe. <laughs> <laughs> a family has since moved into his shoe. <laughs> Oh, there's something uh, digging into my heel. Oh, Nana. Mother Hubbard, <laughs> fuck off. 
so I, I wanted to give you a buzz because I'm curious to know what your thoughts on this is. Yeah. But, um, I, I, I've noticed with the lockdown, there are, when I've caught up with friends, having a chat on the phone, or like last week, I actually went over to a mate's place for dinner. And there's heaps of people that I have never known to be into sport in any way. Yeah. And just about all of them have not only watched but loved Michael Jordan's The Last Dance. And I'm just a bit curious. Why do you think that one leapt out? Is it just because of mm. it was a pandemic? or? But it seems <laughs> like heaps of people, it wasn't just that's the only thing to watch because there's heaps of options, right? There, there, are, there, there are loads of options. Uh, I, although I think the pandemic has helped. Um, but... Sports documentaries, because we're both fans of sports documentaries. So right. what I would always say to someone like my wife, for example, who's not necessarily a sports fan, is yeah. a good sports documentary is 90% of it is about the human story and 10% is about the sport. Right. So a good sports documentary caters for everyone and it's not just yeah. for sports nuffies. But this documentary in particular, I think it does that in this documentary, although there's a lot of great sport in this doco. But right. I think one thing that makes a big difference with this documentary is that even if you're not into sport at all, even if you've never watched a second of basketball in your life, pretty much everyone on the planet knows who Michael Jordan is. Right, yeah. Even if you never followed basketball, he's one of the he's one of the few sportsmen who transcends their sport, yeah. like Muhammad Ali. There's not many Tiger know, Woods, Tiger Woods. Uh, you know, mate, Serena Williams, Serena Williams, maybe, maybe Usain Bolt, maybe yeah. Roger Federer, but there's not many, you know, yeah, who've done that, and so everyone knows who he is. So when in a pandemic, you get a recommendation. Like if someone says, oh, there's a great documentary at Brian Sweeney, people will go, oh, I, it just sounds like hard work to get to know who that is. But as soon as you say, yes. as soon as you say Michael Jordan, people are like, oh, yeah, I know who Jordan is. Yeah. So that's – Yeah, well, they – I think that's the, I think that's step one. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point, actually. It is – it's a short distance – for your intro, yeah, and you could you could you either know him from basketball, you might know him from shoes, yeah, or you might hear Michael Jordan and then immediately go like Mike, like to be like Mike, and get that fucking Gatorade song <laughs> yeah, stuck in your head, exactly, or Space Jam, right? Or Space Jam, yeah, yeah. So there's four ways in very quickly without having to think too much. Yeah, so right, straight away you know who Michael Jordan is. You go, okay, well I'll, I'll see what his deal is. And then you start watching this and you realise, um, just on Michael Jordan for starters, he is just a freak. Like, he is delivered by God as an athlete. Yeah. And yeah. But even that isn't enough for him. He's unbelievably committed, trains hard, yeah. doesn't yeah. suffer poor efforts from anyone, and he won't be dragged down by anyone who's not pulling their weight. So it's right, but having but he's also a team player, right? You know, so I think it's a he's he's a fascinating individual in amongst all that, just because he's such a freak. Um, 
Well, that's funny. He's an he's an egomaniac in a, in a in a team sport where you have to be a team player. Yeah, and there's the I mean, like, the, like it's all about him. It is all about him. But an interesting fact about Jordan, which you know, which non sports people probably wouldn't know, is that in his first years at the Bulls, he was scoring way more points than he did yeah. in their championship years. But yeah. Phil Jackson said to him, the coach, you need to score less for us to win. Yeah. Because it's too focused around yeah. you, which is crazy because it's always focused around Jordan. But On him. but they do change yeah. a bit and he starts to score a little bit less, but they win more games. Yeah. Well, it, it means that the other players on the court are getting the opportunity to get their eye in when they take a shot yeah. rather than standing around and then getting so, such rare opportunities that you're cold. Yeah. By the time you get an opportunity <laughs> to do anything, you know? Yeah, exactly. So, so there's – and also the other thing about Jordan, and this is something I never realised, from the day he arrived at the Bulls, he was their best player. Yeah. Till the day he left. Oh, yeah. And now that yeah. that just – that never happens in the NBA. Yeah. That you're the best player yeah. from the day you arrive to the day you leave. Yeah, it's rare. Yeah, it's really rare. Maybe um, maybe LeBron uh, was uh, the the best player on his team, but that was a you know pretty similar situation where uh, Cleveland weren't very good. Yeah. But you know, even like Magic and Bird, you know, there might have been Bird might have been the best, but there were still a couple of players who were his probably at least his equal. And uh, Magic had Kareem, mm. so you know there was still room for those superstars to to kind of grow into their positions. Yeah. The funny thing for me with Jordan was I always thought he was a transcendent player, but I was never a fan of the guy. And it's been fascinating for me because I've got friends who were always massive Jordan fans back in the day and have kids named after Jordan who watched this documentary who, when we've talked about it, are a little bit like, he's an arsehole. And I'm like... (laughs) Yeah, like, I never thought he wasn't. That that doesn't mean... I'm not saying he's not charismatic and he's not brilliant and he's not super handsome. Do you know what I mean? Like, he's got... But I always thought there was a level of arseholery to him and my friends have been... Some of my friends have been so in shock over it. Like, one of the funniest things in the doco is how he keeps coming up with reasons to hate the opposition and taking it personally. By the by, the last episode, it's almost like sing along if you know the word. <laughs> exactly. And there's that one story that he completely makes up. Oh, yeah. To motivate himself. Now, yeah. you, you know who else used to do this in, no. a doc, in a documentary I've seen since? Lance Armstrong. Oh, really? Exact same technique. He would right. develop a hatred and often he would just make it up. Right. To motivate himself to beat certain writers. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like certain comedians. <laughs> <laughs> there are sociopaths everywhere, as, yeah. as it turns out. Yeah, so yeah, Jordan Jordan had that single-minded focus. I sometimes wonder if you can be as successful as him without being an arsehole. I'd like, yeah. to, th- I'd like to think you can be. Yeah, that, that's how I'm, I justify being on JobKeeper. <laughs> Ah, oh, I must be a good guy. <laughs> I'm clearly a good bloke. <laughs> that is some comfort, I'd say. Oh, yeah. So, so you've got. So for me, there are four aspects, right? Right. Re- reasons why people connect yep. to this. One is Jordan. So you've got yep. an easy entree. Yep. 
Second reason are that all the individual backstories. Yep. Which are all fascinating. Scotty Pippen's backstory with 11 siblings, and that's yep. one of the reasons he took a shitty contract when he could have taken a bigger contract. The Dennis yep. Rodman backstory about, you know, Madonna was such a massive influence on Dennis yep. Rodman. Yeah. You know, be yourself. Yep. and But also Rodman, and we've discussed this, Rodman's perhaps not quite as crazy as people like to pretend no. that he is. Yeah. You know. But then there's the Steve Kerr backstory. There's the Phil Jackson uh, backstory. You know, he's this real uh, American well, a- Indian sort of peacenik, you know. Oh, yeah. Well, he was uh, he, he played on championships with the Knicks in the early 70s, and he's a counterculture guy. Like, he yeah. openly talks about the time he took acid and stuff like that. And, <laughs> yes. and, there's, and there he is in a suit with a, with a moustache coaching this team, bringing in for it, it makes me laugh now, but it was groundbreaking then when he's got them meditating and Med- doing exactly. yoga. Exactly. You Which know. is now every professional sports team in the world does those yeah. things now. Yeah. So he was ahead of the curve. Then you've got the CEO, Jerry Krause. You've got the owner, Jerry Breinsdorf. So you've yep. got all those individual stories, which are all, all of them are fascinating on their own, are fascinating individual stories. So the third reason is the combination of all those stories, meaning the relationships between those people. Yeah. You know, I mean, just I love the Jordan-Rodman relationship. Yeah. Rodman's a loose unit. Jordan wants to win, but Jordan puts up with heaps of shit, not directly from Rodman, but heaps of poor behaviour from Rodman, just because he knows I've got to have him on my team. Yeah, he's going to come in really handy. He's probably going to win us one game in the playoffs, and that game will mean the difference between winning the series and losing the series. A hundred percent. Yeah. So Jordan, Jordan just rolls with the Rodman punches, yeah. and they, you know, they have a great relationship. The Jerry Krause, the CEO, who or the general manager, who put the team together that won the first three championships. Yeah. And now he wants to pull this team apart, and it doesn't yeah. seem to make sense. But I guess I've kind of been able to come up with reasons for it in my head. Well, it's it's you know it's the fact that a on the one hand he is brilliant, like he's put that team together. Yeah, yeah. But you also in sport, no matter how brilliant you are, you need a bit of luck because the the player as a rookie who you think could be something, injury, motivation, uh, intellectual, you know, mental issues, you know, all those things can stop someone from reaching their potential. So you need a little bit of luck as well. But then because they won championships, then his ego came into play because he felt like he wasn't getting enough respect. And then he's kind of screwing them financially, some of the players. So then they start getting snippy back at him. So essentially what he wanted to do was in, in, in theory, his approach was correct. They're getting towards the end of their careers. We should, if we get rid of them now, we'll get some value for them. We can bring in some new players. But what he forgets is, well, if you don't have the luck, yeah, you're never getting back to the finals. So he pulls apart the team. And do you know how many times the Chicago Bulls have played in the NBA finals since? <laughs> Not once this century. Not once. Yeah. So, you know, but then there's the argument that if they didn't know it was their last season, would they have won That's right. that championship number six? Yeah. Because they were motivated. They were as motivated as you could possibly be because they knew yeah. this was the end of the dynasty. 
Yeah, and if there was one thing that we knew about Michael Jordan, he was powered by spite. <laughs> Absolutely, and even invented spite, yeah. as we found out during the series. So that's yeah, a, that's what that, the song should have been, like spite, like yeah. to eat, like spite. Anyway. So the, all those relationships are fascinating as yeah. well, even if you're not into sport, just examining those relationships and how they all get on and how the players, you know, they really, they kind of bully Jerry Krause. I mean, he's oh, a short yeah. tubby guy. Yeah. And they really make fun of him and pick on him. But Jerry oh, Krause awesome. is the one with the power. Yeah. He's, he's their boss. Yeah. You know, but they're real, they can be real assholes to him at times. Yeah. It's really hard to reconcile a lot of the behavior of all of these men. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and then the, then the fourth reason is the, um, is the access. Right. Um, unbelievable behind the scenes yeah. access to that yeah. final season. Yeah. So you Stuff really you get never a see. sense. Yeah, you really get a sense of what goes on Yeah, behind the scenes and you get a really good sense of Jordan. I mean, you know, that scene where he's just swinging a baseball bat in his hand. Oh, yeah. And smoking a cigar. Yeah. Sitting to talking about, I think someone had been bad-mouthing him. Yeah. And he's just sitting there talking through it while he's swinging a baseball bat and smoking a cigar. I mean, that shit you just never... Yeah, it's we've, like we've never seen that, mate. Do you, you, you're not Robert De Niro and the Untouchables. Like, what the fuck is going on here? Uh, and then, so you have all of those components, and then the people that made the documentary put it together beautifully. It was yeah. really well edited. The stories all kicked in at the right time, so the storytelling was impeccable. And yep. then, on top of it, if you're a, especially if you're a, you know of a certain age, that was a soundtrack to your youth. That music yeah. that plays all the way through it, the oh, music yeah, yeah, yeah. drops are incredible. And he deliberately, the director, deliberately chose music that was right for the time, as in yeah. if it was 1996, he was choosing songs From that, that were influential in 1996, yeah. Yeah, yeah, amazing. So um, so if anyone uh, watched the Jordan doco and they yeah. want to watch a – another sporting documentary, whether a one-off or a series. Uh, do you have a – and they might not be necessarily a sports fan. Yeah. Do you have a, a go-to that you make suggestions for? I'm going to uh, – I've been tossing up between two, and my recommendation for people is a 30, ESPN 30 for 30 documentary called The Two Escobars. Okay. Uh, now, this is about Pablo Escobar – a well-known drug lord, yep. and Andreas Escobar, captain of the Colombian soccer team. And oh, this right. is it's a beautifully made documentary. A lot of people say this is the best 30 for 30 documentary. Oh, and they have quality documentaries. Oh, yeah, they've made some rippers. And yep. it just follows the intersection of the international, the Colombian soccer team with Pablo Escobar as a drug lord, and specifically Andreas Escobar, who is a really committed, devout Catholic right. and wants nothing to do with Pablo Escobar, but half of his teammates become friends with Pablo Escobar because right. Pablo Escobar has all this money and Pablo Escobar essentially funds Colombian soccer. Oh, right. And the reason Colombia made the World Cup in 1994 is because of all the money that Pablo Escobar put into Colombian soccer. Right. So uh, this might sound like a dumb question, but are Pablo and Andre, are they related? No relation. No. Oh, so that's just 
unfortunate for the captain. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, totally. So Pablo Escobar, he wanted to improve Colombia with drug money. Right. That was, and now genuinely, that's what he thought he was could do. And he did give a lot of money to poor people in uh, Medellin. Uh, and Andreas Escobar wanted to improve the nation through soccer. That was his thing. Right. He wanted to unite Colombia through football. Right. But then you had this weird mix of Pablo Escobar's money is paying, and he would invite the into the national team to his retreat, but Andreas right. Escobar never went. Right. Because he just couldn't, you know, he couldn't hang out with someone so evil. So he was always torn about leading a country, leading the team that was funded by Pablo Escobar's money. Um, <sighs> and they had this amazing run. They made the 1994 World Cup. Yeah. And and there, and just a classic story in amongst it, the goalie, the Colombian goalie, um, gets a phone call from a drug lord saying, oh, my daughter's been kidnapped, 11-year-old daughter. Can you be the go-between to hand over the uh, ransom money? So he says, so the goalie becomes a go-between between these two drug lords. Oh, my God. One's, so it ended up Pablo Escobar kidnapped this other guy's 11-year-old daughter. So the goalie collects the ransom money, hands it over, gets the daughter back, and then gets paid $64,000, and then he gets arrested. <laughs> and he said, right. I've written the quote down, he goes, I'm a footballer. I don't understand kidnapping laws. <laughs> <laughs> Well, in his defence, he didn't. <laughs> he definitely didn't. So then he he got he got uh, he didn't make the team, so he got dropped out. Then Pablo Escobar gets killed at the end of nineteen ninety three, and then they go right. they, and then you know Colombia lose to Romania in their first game, and every team member starts getting threats from criminals back in Colombia because they've all bet big money on Colombia, so right. they're saying we're going to kidnap your family if you don't win the next game. Oh my god! Anyway, there's there's so this this amazing intersection between soccer and uh, you know these cartels in Colombia, and the yeah, story great. is told unbelievably well. And I won't tell you how it ends because it has an, an unbelievable ending as well. Okay, is that a series or is that a one off? One off. One off. Great. Uh, the two Escobars because we can't get enough of uh, drug stories like Pablo oh, Escobar. Yeah. We just can't get enough of what. So this is you get to combine sport and Pablo yep. Escobar. Yeah, and uh, it's, uh, it's, it's such a soccer is already a sport full of high drama. Uh, yeah, I, absolutely. And in and this, what happens with this team because they're so good? They beat Argentina five nil, right in the qualifier. Oh, right. In the qualifiers, yep. Colombia. For the first time since anyone can remember, the whole country is united. Yeah. So Andreas Escobar's dream has come true. He's united the country yeah. through soccer, but he's done it off the back of Pablo Escobar's money. Oh, man. So that it's this, great. So it's this <laughs> awesome mix yeah. of uh, drug money, you know, and a really good, clean living, honest bloke who doesn't yeah. know how, who just can't escape it. 
Uh, I, I just want to see it for the, the goalkeeper. He's the guy that I have been totally <laughs> yeah. won over by. I tell you what, he, uh, I think he took care of the Mad Monday celebrations as well. And uh, yeah. <laughs> I believe that Mad Monday's still going, actually. So <laughs> he got done, the goalie, the goalie got done, uh, for drugs in 2004. He tested, right. tested positive to guess which drug, Justin? Um, meth. <laughs> Close. <laughs> Close. Close. Cocaine. Oh, yeah. Wow, I did not see that coming. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, oh, well, that's great. Well, um, you had another suggestion, but why don't we? Uh, why don't I check in uh, uh, in about a week's time? Yeah, see okay. how the beard's great. going, and and uh, let me know this other one. But uh, yeah, that's great. And as I said, you know, you don't have to be into it, the thing about the Jordan doco. It just reminded me. Sometimes yeah. a sporting documentary, the least interesting part of it is the actual sport. All it does is provide the framework for you yeah. to hang the interesting stories. Yeah, 100%. And they are, if you care about people and relationships, then pretty much every well-made sporting documentary is going to be for you. Yeah, and, and people earning millions of dollars to do what they love and acting childishly. <laughs> <laughs> it's been my dream my it whole my life. Dream. Yeah. Uh, where, where can everyone find you at the moment? Are you uh, doing any online gigs or you're just uh, I'm, on the socials? I've got a podcast called They Came to Play, which is an AFL podcast. Yep. Uh, that I do. Otherwise, just get me on the socials, Lemo23 on Twitter yep. and Le- Lemo15 on Instagram. Yep. Keep them guessing. Keep them guessing. Someone had, someone's had. someone got Lemo23. Oh. Infuriating. Yeah, I know. It's uh, they should give it up if they're a good pe- yeah, people. Just give it up. If they're a good person. Uh, yeah. And aside from that, you'll see me walking the streets of Melbourne in a mask. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wrapped that uh, you've discovered you don't have halitosis. <laughs> oh, and you'll see, you'll know me because it pulls my ears forward as I say. Oh yeah. So I'm a giant yeah. wingnut walking the streets of Melbourne. Yeah, you you think what's going on with that guy is about to take off. Oh no, it must tell, be Lemo. I tell you what, my hearing's improved though. Yeah, I'm hearing heaps of things. <laughs> All right, mate. Thanks for that. All right, thank you, mate. always fun to catch up with Limo and it's always fun to catch up with our next guest, one of my favourite people in the whole wide world. It's uh, it's my New Zealand sister. That's why I've decided I'm going to start calling her. It's uh, Cal Wilson with her new segment, My Proudest Shame. So I was talking earlier in the podcast about Brian Ferry's first album, These Foolish Things, which is an album full of cover songs. And I was wondering, do you have a favourite cover song or do you have any firm views on what makes a great cover? Okay, so I reckon what makes a great cover is uh, uh, when you hear it, you go, oh, I didn't know it could do that. Like, you know, you you rehear the song in a totally different way. Like um, yeah. the classic one is the Donnie Darko Mad World like Gary oh, yeah. Gary Jules redoing Tears for Fears. Like I just yes. love that so much. Um, I yeah, that I that I think is such a brilliant reimagining. Um, she had, or Pacifier yeah. as they were occasionally known. They did. Can you do a cover of your own song? If you uh, if you do it, and I suppose it's. Well, I guess I guess a cover. Well, I was about to say it's a reinterpretation of your own song, but it's also 
what a cover song is, yeah. isn't it? So she had did um, an acoustic version of Run, which is a really great song yep. as it is, but the acoustic version is so beautiful because you kind of hear the you hear the beauty of the song and the melody because it's all stripped back and it's not Wah! like right. it's lovely. But my favourite, um, just sneaking in to be a cover song because it's got a new singer on it, is Elbow and John Grant singing Kindling, Fickle Flame, right? which is it's so... I don't beautiful hearing two men with amazing voices singing a duet together like you tend to hear that you know like islands in the stream or um don't go breaking my heart there's like you know there's the male female kind of love song but it's just two right. two men singing a song about love not necessarily to each other but, but it's just gorgeous it's so gorgeous yeah you know what that's a really good point i've never thought about that before it usually is the the, the dynamic of of a man and a woman, especially like you, you get duets like Queen and Bowie under pressure. Yeah, yeah. But that's um, but something a little bit softer and a little bit more emotional, I guess, is uh, or, or about feelings. You don't hear that too often. No, and 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 in the song um, "Fickle Flame," like you, they're talking about being in love with a woman, so you kind of right. it doesn't sound like it's them singing to each other but it's them singing together and it's like I'll put it on repeat in the car if I'm driving anywhere because it's just so lovely right. I feel like I should stop talking to you now and make you listen to it but I won't oh yeah um, no I'm, I've, <laughs> I've, I've actually just written it down I'm going to check it so out and beautiful. I will and I'll put it on our big squid uh, Facebook page so people can uh, check it out as well but it, it sounds like from your description it's two men lamenting their uh Bad luck in love. Kind, is kind that of. It starts off. Um, the, I've got a circular saw blade where I should have had a heart, and it's talking about. It's talking about wow. how I was um, like, like he's trusted and adored, but he he broke a heart. But they're on a train, and the the um, the fields are bursting into gold either side of the train. Like it's just so lovely. It's a. I I feel like it's a hopeful song. Like I fucked up, but there's hope. Right. And it's just yeah. It's just two beautiful, rich men's voices. Right, and, this, and do you, and when sorry, when you love a song, do you thrash it? Oh, totally, until I don't yeah. like it anymore. But that doesn't happen. I just yeah, like I will. <laughs> <laughs> I've noticed with Digby because he's he's got um he's got music playing while he's doing his schoolwork now. And that he's the same as me. He can listen to the same song over and over again for like an hour and a half. Yeah. Like it's just a soothing background thing. Like yeah. A couple for a couple of years when I have been writing my shows, I've listened to Alison Moyer's greatest hits just over again right. on repeat because it's familiar and it's um I'm not going, oh that's a good lyric because I know it so well I don't have to I'm not being surprised by anything. Right. And it's just this lovely comforting so, just a, a soundtrack I guess. Um that I've noticed Dig does that too with his songs. Like there'll be three or four too that he'll put on a wee playlist and you'll just listen to those again and again. And this is yeah. not related to what we were talking about, but it's just sprung into my head. Um, I've shown him the videos, you know, the music list music videos that um, people were doing a couple of years ago. Oh, so like, yeah. like Bowie and Jagger dancing in the street with no music, just the noises of them making little... Panting. Yeah, yeah. Just, yeah. It's so ridiculous. He has fallen in love with that yeah. so hard. And it's been... They're really funny. Really funny. The aha uh -huh take on me one is really great as well. <laughs> it it's is. So yeah, good. yeah, yeah. You'll, you, you'll have to tell Digby that that was one of Bowie's favourite clips that he would show people when they went over his house. He'd say, check this out. And it used to make him laugh. <laughs> it's so great. That is so great. <laughs> 
That's great. I um, I'm I'm really into uh, all of that. Uh, I, I also when I'm writing shows, I invariably soundtrack my shows. Yep. So I will listen to music, and especially with the John Tilda Animus shows, I was trying to find songs that fitted the mood of what I was trying to portray, uh-huh. while also finding the exact moment where you wanted a song to kick in and. And, and trail off. I think that would be my. I think that would be my favorite job in the world. Would be the guy who gets to find the song that finishes the episode of the HBO series that you're watching. <laughs> yep, that would be an amazing job. My my big music task for every show is to find the the pre-show music. And yes, because I'm going to be listening to it every night for a month, so it has to be yes. something that I love. But it has to be something that the audience can enjoy immediately and not be like, "Well, this is a challenging Swedish." a tonal four hour monologue song. Like, like it's got to be yeah. something that, that builds the mood, but then it's the songs have to follow each other in the right order. So you're building. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it always takes me ages and it's always really stressful. And then I'm so excited when I found it and I, I love, I love getting myself ready for the show by using the music every night. Oh yeah. I, I thrashed um, George Harrison's all those years ago, the song <laughs> that he wrote for John Lennon before Every performance of Three Colours Hamo during the uh, Melbourne Comedy Fest from 2007, just on repeat, because it kind of uh, hit that tone in my head of where the shows were. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, And also writing the soundtrack music is really good because it's designed to sit underneath whatever you're watching. Yes, yes. So having that playing in the background is never too obtrusive with whatever you're doing. Unless it's cartoon music, in which case... Uh, you can't oh, concentrate. So <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly you just want to stand up and run into a wall and leave yeah. an oh. imprint of I've, your body there. I've hit myself with a giant hammer. <laughs> um, but music aside, you are here to, uh, for your segment, yes. uh, My Proudest Shame, yes. uh, which we debuted and uh, was, a, was a lot of fun. And, and uh, what have you thought in, since we did that first segment? Um, well, it's interesting. I keep thinking of all the little things that I'm ashamed of and going, oh, I can talk mm. about that. Because I, I think we're very good at being ashamed of ourselves, but we're not great at being proud of ourselves. And so my whole right. idea for this is that I want to hear about a thing that keeps you awake, but I also want to hear about a thing that you're genuinely proud of because I think as Antipodeans we are a bit shit at being proud of ourselves in a way that um, North Americans are so good at it they're so good at it and we are shit did you used to find when you were younger and you would see people especially in North America talking about what they're really good at did you used to find it confronting oh totally totally and even now sometimes still like i'm totally addicted to rupaul's drag race in all of its forms um and there's a there's a young drag queen on it who just got knocked out uh in the last week and she was talking about how how well she's done and all the things that she's been through and how far she's come and i found it so off-putting i was like oh i can't listen to this like (laughs) i don't know whether it's an age thing as well like she's less than half my age and i'm like what have you been through lady you know like (laughs) um um which is a terrible way to think but but also just that kind of i've done so well and i got this far and i'm so proud of myself and you know I was just like, oh, settle down. Like someone else is supposed to say that if we, which is a terrible way to think. We should be allowed to, we should be able to claim our victories and not be like, oh, right. you know. It's like when someone says, oh, that's a, that's an amazing, um, that's a, an amazing dinner you've made. Oh, it was a little bit burnt. It was a little bit. Right. Oh. Well, 
you, did you did you find, uh, especially as a comedian, one of the lessons that I had to learn was when someone gives you a compliment, just take the yeah. compliment because when you when you belittle the compliment, even though you're doing it as a way of protecting yourself from being too up yourself. Yep. What you're doing is you're actually telling them they're wrong for their yes, experience. Yeah. And there's there's nothing worse than, you know, when you've kind of not had a gig that you've really been that engaged with or you, yeah. you know that you just made a mistake somewhere and then someone said something really nice to you and when we were younger, it just ruined their moment by going, oh, yeah, but, you know, when I said that joke, I was meant to be facing to the left and I was facing yeah, to yeah, the right yeah. and then I left out this uh, callback setup that I had to squeeze in so the callback was only – they haven't noticed. No, they haven't they've noticed. Had a good time. And I also don't give a shit about you standing <laughs> in the wrong direction. Like, what? <laughs> they do not care. It's like a mechanic. Take the compliment. Yeah, it's like a mechanic going – Oh, I'm really sorry. One of those spark plugs is a different colour. I'm oh, I'm really disappointed. Oh. I really let myself down. Like, oh, there's a tiny finger mark underneath the chassis that you'll never see. Yeah. Like, just, yeah. just let them go, thanks for fixing my car. It runs beautifully. Yeah, shushy. Just, yeah. just take the compliment. You know, it's funny. For me, like, I love tennis and I'm a big Roger Federer fan. But sometimes after games, he would say, oh, you know, Andy Roddick played really well, but I was brilliant today. And I'd be like, oh. <laughs> Like what, Rog? Just <laughs> calm down, mate. But then he was—he yeah. was brilliant, yeah. and he had to be brilliant to beat the person yeah. he was playing against. So, but I still—I I, still kind of cringe. It's weird, isn't it? It's because we do—we have to strike that balance between acknowledging that we've done well, but at the same time, you don't want to sound like an asshole, right? And as the compliment giver, if you give someone a compliment and they go. Yeah, it was great. How do you feel about that? Like, I don't know. There's a, there's a, uh, um, there's still got to, you've still got to sound humble in all your glory kind of thing. Right. I think. So that's funny because that is a bit of a segue into something I felt pride uh-huh. So I've got I've, I've got a pride thing and a shame. Okay, thing so tell me. You. So is this a recent pride thing? Is this the most recent time you have felt proud of yourself? Absolutely. Great. And it really ties into what you just said because because uh, I did worry afterwards <laughs> that I had maybe banged on a bit. So uh, I don't know if you know, but I did my – I performed my first gigs since March. Oh, wow. Just last Thursday. And wow. uh, I was I went and performed down at the New Giant Dwarf, which I have to say reminded me a lot of the old Rhino Room. Oh, great. You know, small, the colours, uh, the music that was playing, the shape of it, you know, it's like an old jazz room. So, you know. But anyway, so I go down there and uh, they were, they're doing two shows so they can get as many comedians up as possible, but someone couldn't make it for the second show. So I uh, they asked me if I wanted to do both. And so the first – so it was hard to work out what to do because it's like – I've got a whole brand new show, but. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70 percent of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I don't know if I can do that yeah. because that was... Pre-pandemic. pre pandemic pre yeah, so I feel like a different person, yep. but is everyone going to be talking about pandemic stuff? So I was a bit, so I went in with a uh, whole new 15 and thought, how am I going to do this? Turns out comedy is just comedy and yep. people talk about the pandemic and some people don't talk about the pandemic. But I did the first gig, had a really good time. And then I got to do the second one like half an hour later. So when I jumped up the second time, and this is such a, a funny kind of dumb thing to feel pride over but do you know how you feel like you forget you've got skills yeah like if if someone said to you write down your skills as a comedian <sighs> it, it would be hard yeah. work right so in the second gig I just made some adjustments I made some adjustments to the routines that made the routines better and I felt such pride on stage in that moment because it was like in this whole pandemic, I've been talking myself out of a career. I've been yeah. talking myself out of it saying, you know what? I don't need to do this anymore. I've been doing this for 26 years. I'll be fine. It's time to move on. You know what? The world is moving on without me. I'm a middle-aged white man. It doesn't matter what my history is. Everyone's looking elsewhere. And you know what? I don't need it. And I think it was essentially a way of protecting yeah. myself for moving forward but that one little moment where I just made some adjustments on a joke that changed it from being something that got a laugh in the first gig to something that got a some big people laugh. clapping yeah. do you know what I mean I, I suddenly was like hang on a minute I'm good at this like yeah, I'm, yeah. I, I know what I'm doing and, and besides I, I don't have any skills in the real world I can't go out into the real world like I don't even drive like as a comedian that's quirky but in in the real world like you know yeah, yeah. that makes me useless yeah there's no so, there's no walking couriers <laughs> none <laughs> your meal will be there in an hour and a half depending on the buses but so so I felt this real pride and uh, one of our managers uh, Diony had come to see both shows because there were acts on yep. that she wanted to see in both and so she came up to me afterwards and the first thing she said to me was she really loved seeing me on stage again but also being uh, able to see me back to back and seeing me make the adjustments yeah, yeah. and she said I wanted to show that to some people and say this is how you do it and I felt really I felt really good about that yeah, that's great and then and then came home and didn't get to sleep till three in the morning and <laughs> A because of adrenaline and B because because around around the two AM mark I thought did I did I bang on too much to Diony about how good I felt? <laughs> no, you didn't. You know, yeah, yeah. I, but I, I totally get it. Yeah, but it was so, it, it took me by surprise as well. It really yeah. took me by surprise that little thing that we all do. Yeah, you know, yeah. like we work on material, we make adjustments. But I'd completely forgotten that I had that skill and that moment of of improvement yeah. from half an hour before in a in a brand new routine 
made me feel really good about yeah. myself. Yeah, because it's a because it's a feeling that you already know. Like you you're like, oh yeah, I've done this before. I know how to do this. Yeah. But also in this um, apocalyptic world, you're like, oh, like you say, it still works. Oh, I can do this. I can use I can use these skills that have only been theoretical for the last three or four months. Now you're like, oh yeah, yeah no, I do know how to. I totally know how to do it. I felt yeah. I felt euphoric. The one actual gig I've had in an actual room with actual people between lockdown, um, there were 16 people in the room and it felt like there were 100, and I felt so yeah. euphoric afterwards of going, oh, yeah, it works. That's right. And, yeah. and the same thing of going, oh, yeah, some people are going to talk about COVID and some people aren't. And, you know, it's not like um, – it's not like the audience is just 23. It's like, oh, yeah, there are people of our age who want to, who still uh, wish to be entertained kind of thing because I'm very conscious that, you know, I'm turning 50 this year and yeah. and going, ah, oh, shit, like, ah, oh, this is what, what happens to me afterwards kind of thing. But then, yeah. well, who knows what happens because we haven't done this before. Um, but that's exciting. How exciting that you've done the gig and you've gone, oh, yeah, I know how to fly the plane. I totally know how to fly yeah. a plane. That's why they let me fly the plane. Yeah, that's why I'm here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's funny, isn't it, the the amount of, for all the experience that you and I have, and especially collectively as well, the, those weird little doubts mm. that creep into your head. I think, I think maybe if you're, I, I put it down to being empathetic with what's going on in the world. And, you know, like I try to... Uh, take on board a lot of the stuff that's happening and and then try to find how to position myself in that world yeah. and it, and it can be it can be tricky when you don't have an outlet to know whether what you're thinking is correct or if you're just overthinking yeah. yourself yeah, into totally. a tight ball yeah i've learned now in emails to um our manager to go i might be overthinking this and then yes. asking the question, and then she'll come back with, you're overthinking it. I'll be like, go on, just needed to check. Like, <laughs> Yeah, 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 it's so funny, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, I, I do a little bit of that as well. And it's uh, it's hard to get the balance right yeah. because kind of what – kind of being able to overthink is what got us here. Yeah, totally, <laughs> the over-noticing of everything. <laughs> um, okay, so, so, so that's, your great, that's your great proud of yourself one, which is absolutely yeah. perfect. What is the most recent time you have felt ashamed and or guilty so, <laughs> so many to choose from. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, so when, when, so this kind of ties into uh, current times, but when lockdown kicked in, my uh, goal, my main goal was the one thing I can actually properly control at this point is my physical health. That's yep. the one thing that I can I can be on top of. So I've been walking most days, uh, and when I say most days, like six days of the yep. week on average, uh, at least 10 kilometres a day. I've been doing, uh, you know, I've gotten myself up to being able to do three reps of 16 with push-ups. I can plank Great. for two minutes. I've been doing yoga with Adrienne, <laughs> who I, I think I may have told you before, I, I wish... She was my cousin. Have, yes. you, have you seen um, you have. This is one of my little shames is you sent me an email going, this is a great one to start with and I haven't opened oh, it. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. So, you know, you, you'll get to it. But it's, uh, it, it's, it's been one of those things and I was uh, very careful with my diet, etc. And then in the last couple of weeks, the walking has 
petered out and the push-ups have petered out and Adrienne and I have not hung out <laughs> anywhere near as much. And then I have cobbled that with just some really bad eating. Yep. Like really, really good at it. Like I could go professional and I, and I was kind of just looking I – was, I was looking – you know, I was looking fit. You know, yep, that's how yep. I was feeling. And then it was just uh, on the weekend, you know, it's so funny. Like you'll walk past the mirror and kind of do a double take and then you come back and it's like the shoulders are a little bit slouched. The, yep. the, the, the tummy has decided to just begin to poke its head out. <laughs> and I was just I was just really down on myself yeah, yeah. for letting that happen. happen. Yeah. And, and then there's that, that, that kind of body shame where you look yeah. at yourself and no, nobody's thinking it. No one's thinking but- it. And and like I'm the same of going, oh, my God, I've eaten so much chocolate. Like if like I've eaten the chocolate yeah. chips, which were supposed to be for the muffins. Like I've eaten all <laughs> right. of the of – all of the – any chocolate-based <laughs> food in our house is long gone. Um, yeah. And I look at my friends who say they put on weight and I'm like, you look gorgeous and you look absolutely fine and lovely and everything. But then I look at yeah. myself and I'm like, ah, like we're so hard on ourselves <laughs> – and also the thing that we have to keep remembering is we're in a pandemic and we don't know how to deal with it. Like, Right. So I'm very forgiving of you doing that, but with me I'm like, oh, no. Like I've got to, yes. I've got to get a like a padlock on the pantry or something like that, like a time-sensitive lock that won't open until five minutes before dinner. Like um, that, that um, I don't know, the one thing you can control is what you put in your mouth. And I do right. a lot of angry comfort eating. Oh, I am. Really good at it, and you know what? Where it really kind of picked up was I watched uh, the the two series of My Brilliant Friend, which is in Italian, and I watched the latest season of The Bureau, which is in French. And you know what? You don't need to hear what they're saying because you're reading it. So I would nail a fucking packet of chips without even That's really great. thinking. But I, so I had to go and get a blood test last week because. Uh, I have a disposition for I'm, – I'm potentially pre-diabetic. Oh, okay. Like I, I, I don't yeah. have it, but, you know, you have to be careful. Yeah. And it's funny, I was meant to go at the start of the year, then everything kicked in, and I thought, well, this is not a priority because there are people who are really sick who need to go yeah. to the doctor. So I'm not going to take up any time. But up here in Sydney, things are still okay at the moment, though, you know, another lockdown could come at yeah. – any second so I thought I'd better go in and it's almost like going in knowing I was getting uh, blood taken for that it's almost like for some weird reason I decided well I better give him something to check out <laughs> and I've had lollies here I've had chips I've had chocolate and I have been eating like an asshole. I have been just going for it and I made that fatal mistake of once you get into that shame cycle about your eating, I then got online. Like, this, like we've done material about this. Like, it, it makes me angry when I do the things that I've done material about. <laughs> but I got online and I looked up, oh, yeah, what are the, uh, the things I should look out for if diabetes has kicked in? And it's like blurry eyesight. Yeah. And then I'm like, I've had blurry eyesight, you know. But I've also been sitting at the computer working a lot, yeah. you, know, the, you know, so... Oh, not sleeping properly? I haven't been sleeping properly. It's a fucking pandemic. Yep. Of course I haven't been sleeping properly. Oh, why Why is my left arm feeling? Then I'm looking up left arm and, and it was... Anyway, yep. it was a late night again. Yep. A good a good session with Dr. Google. Ah, Dr. Google can go fuck himself. 
He's <laughs> <laughs> such an arsehole. So I've been um, I've been trying to do the fitness thing as well because I have. I've, yep. So I've the perfect storm of pandemic comfort eating um, and perimenopause. I think like right. I'd like double weight gain kind of thing, and so I've been running to try and get a bit. Sorry, so, are you officially pre-menopause or is so. that per- perimenopause? So. so it's like the yep. the trailer for menopause, I think. So <laughs> um, <laughs> even if you yeah, don't this is one where you yeah, yeah yeah. Hopefully the cinemas won't open very soon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, yeah, so I've been running, and what I've discovered is I've I've started to like running, which is a very weird thing for me to say because I've never been a physical person. Right. Whatsoever. And I ran 12Ks the other day for the first time. And it was oh, very exciting to me. Um, so I celebrated with some chocolate. Um, <laughs> but the uh, the thing that I'm finding, this is, I sort of should be ashamed of this. I think I'm the last person on the planet doing it. Um, I'm playing Pokemon Go still. And so oh, right. when I'm out for my run, if I do, I can hatch eggs as I run. Like I'm not, I'm not, um, aimlessly wandering around. I'm actually doing exercise, but I'm achieving things on a child's game. <laughs> right. Like, and I ran 50 Ks this week and I was like, that's pretty great. Like I've run yeah. every day, but also it was cause I wanted to hatch some eggs. Like, <laughs> Oh, that's so funny. You know, I don't play video games just because I know how obsessive I get about things and I've already yeah. got enough obsessions. I've been playing a game since the pandemic called uh, Township, where I have been building up New Hamilton, which is my city. And I have, that, that has been the two things that, A, it's taking up way too much time, yeah. especially now that I'm building up the zoo and I'm really getting into the decoration of the zoo. But also, it, it, like the, the two things that I allowed myself to spend money on because I just tightened everything and yeah. I cancelled so much stuff and I've, I've been really, really super tight. And the only things I spend money on are going downstairs to get a coffee because it gets me out of yep. the lounge and it also just gives me Human. a little bit of contact. Yep. And secondly is this fucking game as I build <laughs> up my town for what reason I don't yep. really know. I don't know what happens once you've built it up. Then you go... Look at my town. But anyway, that's been my little video yeah. game obsession. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you're doing that. It makes me feel not as alone as I was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then the other day, someone got arrested and fined. Not arrested? No, they got fined $200 for playing Pokemon Go. That's like not a reason you should be out of the house. But I'm like, but I'm exercising with a side order of Pokemon Go. Oh, like, yeah. I'm, you know, but- and I'm... Oh, the other thing that I'm sort of ashamed of is, did I say this last time? Oh, spoke? my God. If you get a fine for playing Pokemon, that would be amazing. Oh, I would, Sorry. I would have to resign from everything. Um, <laughs> uh, did I talk about how judgmental I've got? Like, I've really... No. Oh, I've really let my judgmental side have free reign. Like, not out loud, right. but as I'm running. So, I'm wearing, a, I'm wearing a mask that if I run past someone on a track, I pull it up over my nose. Yeah. Yeah, um, but it's hard to run. You not you don't have to run in a mask. But I'm like, yep. if, if I'm passing anyone on the track, I'll pull yep. it up. Um, but people who are just out walking without a mask on, oh my goodness! Oh yeah, so much right. tutting. Like right, it's so much. Oh, you don't look like you live in the same house. Like that's not social distancing. You know, like I'm right. so. Or in the supermarket when I go to the supermarket, I'm like, oh, it's not 1.5 meters. Like I'm yeah. just so. Like, I've, I've definitely gotten it on the on the distance. And but up in Sydney, I've gotten angry at guys who don't wear shirts when they run. <laughs> it's like, mate, just put on a shirt. 
I just put on a shirt. I yep. don't need your awful sweaty body flicking COVID onto me. Yeah. And it doesn't, make, this it doesn't make me really weird, like, because I'm wearing the mask when I'm running past people, of going, shit, this mask gets so wet. Right. Like, just the thought of what we spread. Like, a, like right. it is outrageous, the moisture that we give off. Yeah. To other people. And the other thing the other thing that I've noticed when I'm running is that still creepy old guys want to talk to you. Like so I have stopped running along one part of the track because um there was a guy the other day who got angry that I didn't stop and talk to him and was like shouting abuse after me as I ran past. Wow. Um, and I just want a t shirt that says I'm not doing this to meet people. Like Yeah, like like I'm literally running. Yeah, I'm running. I'm running. I'm not, I might have left the kettle on. You don't know why I'm running, but I'm running. Like, right, right. It's like, I've, this is not, it's not me hoping a guy in his 50s carrying a plastic shopping bag is going <laughs> to yell at me. Like, that's not, I could, I could go up to the local shops and get that. Like, yes. That, that, it's just weird. What, what's going through their head that you're going to stop suddenly and come back and sit down and Give really? Them a blowy. I don't know. Like... Right? Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe he's hoping that. <laughs> maybe he's rattling his little shopping bag. Um, but it's, yeah, it's just so weird. It's like, no, I'm not. Do- I, I'm not doing this for you. I haven't been running along here yes. every day, going, oh, god, I hope Basil's out. Like, yeah. Oh yeah. man, that is so funny. That's. A, I think that's a fair thing. That's. You were saying you were being judgmental, but. Uh, yeah. Maybe you're talking to the wrong person because I'm on your side with all of that stuff. <laughs> uh, well, that was great. I, I, I feel a little bit better. It's 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 nice to talk about things that you feel some sort of pride with because it's the hardest thing to come up with. But yeah. it's it's nice to yeah. be able to discuss it. Yeah, and also like I was thinking about this before. I was thinking of how proud I am of you. Like. Right. Like the the thing that came to mind is that we're in this weird position where we talk about the shows that we do at the festival, but we never get to see them because we're oh, at the yeah. same time or, or whatever. But like last year, your show, John Tilt Animus, yeah. you were in a position where suddenly it went from being a play with other people to being a one-man show. Like yeah. how many weeks before it opened? How many days? It was uh, four and a half weeks. Four and a half weeks. So you just yeah. had to rewrite your whole thing. Yeah. And make it work. And you did that and it got awards and everyone loved it and said it was fantastic. And like, I just go, like a lesser person would have just gone, oh, I just, I just do an hour of my greatest hits of material, like, and not even right. try and make it work. It, but you just did it. Well, it was, it was, uh, well, thank you. It was funny because I had the, the day that I found out that I was actorless and, uh, I talked to, uh, one of our groups, uh, one of the managers at, our management group and I sort of had a chat and was like, and it was uh, Kathleen McCarthy. And she said to me, well, why, why don't you just like rewrite them? And I was like, yeah, okay. Why don't I do that? And then she said, take the rest of today off and then get into it tomorrow. And I was like, yeah, that's a good idea. So I just watched, I think I just watched like sport. Yep. I may have done some binge eating and then, the, over the next, uh, I think it was over the next five days or six days, I just had this real routine where I'd get up in the morning, go to the gym, have a have a slow breakfast at a cafe, and then I would write all day and I would break it up with reading, watching movies, listening to music, 
and then at some point I'd cook dinner and then I'd go for a walk just to walk it off. And I didn't speak to anyone for those uh, six days and I just rewrote the three shows. And I have to say, they were my favourite six days of the year. Amazing. (laughs) It was such a – because it was really – super creative and yeah, there was yeah. and i guess weirdly there wasn't any panic there was a bit of well we have to do this now yeah yeah the worst has happened yeah so how do we think our way through it like that, that's sometimes the fun part of putting shows together isn't it is yeah. like you would have had a what was the what was that hilarious show that you took to edinburgh where oh, you didn't realize been, it fr- it could have been uh, me was that the one yeah it was uh, when you, you're sitting in the audience and you have no idea that everything that makes up the stage ends up being a part of oh, the yeah. show. Yeah. Yeah. That must have been fun to when you have that yeah, moment where yeah. you have the idea and then nut out how it's going to work. Yeah, and and working with the director was really great that time because it was because she brought in she kind of gave me permission to go further than I would have on my own. Right. You know, like, to go, yeah, well, of course you should have a giant moustache that you wear as angel wings. Like, Right. Um, yeah, but that was, that was really fun. That was a really fun show. But yeah. what I love about that is that Kathleen has just totally just told you to go and do a really impossible thing. Like, she's a Jedi master. Like, oh, you know, yeah. Like, you should just go and rewrite it. I'll just go oh, okay. and rewrite it. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'll do that. Uh, but it was, um, it was, uh, it was a fun, uh, process and, uh, the first time they were performed, it was all three in a row on a Saturday, and it was <laughs> exhilarating <laughs> just to just to do it and then have a little break. I'm sure they were pretty idiosyncratic shows, and I'm sure there were you know there were um, <laughs> there were some people who were like, "What what did I just experience?" <laughs> but I don't know. Don't don't you feel as you're getting older? Like doing stand up is it's so much fun, and I yeah. really enjoy it. But when you when you get an opportunity to do a show, you just want to try something. Interesting. Yeah. Like, so this year, my thing was, you know, pre COVID was, I was, I was really playing with grossing the audience out, which is not something I've done on stage before. Like, so I had two or three stories that got like reactions from the audience. And it was really fun playing with that and, and acknowledging what I was doing. Like, I, I, I don't know. I don't know whether those stories will work in this, this post-COVID time, but it was, I really enjoyed that of going, oh yeah, you weren't expecting me to say something that really disgusted you. <laughs> yeah, fun. What What was, yeah. uh, before I let you go, what was the inspiration for trying that? Oh, it just, it was stories that I had that I hadn't been able to fit in. There was a, there's a story involving maggots and a dead blackbird. Um, right. Which is one of the most, like, uh, the most bizarre experiences. Like, there was a, mo- there was a genuine moment of, where I genuinely thought, am I in a Stephen King film? Because I couldn't understand what was happening in front of me. And so right. I'd never been able to find a way to make that story funny. And then I kind of worked it out this year. Um, and another another story, which I've told on stage before, but never in a show about the um, about Casper's World in Miniature with the room full of um, sculptures made out of human teeth. Oh, right. Um, so there was, there was so, so playing with, like, what a disgusting thing to talk about. Like, and that was, yeah. and, and talked about a gross hand injury I'd had. And, and it was really fun putting those in the show and going, oh, yeah, I don't, I don't normally elicit this response from my crowd, but it's really fun yeah. to play with it. Yeah, it's, it's nice to have those little challenges, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Keeps you engaged, yeah. as it were, in the, in, the, in the creative process. Well, you know, uh, what I was thinking is, why don't we, 
open this up to anyone who's listening, who's feeling some pride or some shame over something. And they can either write it to me on the uh, Big Squid Facebook page or what's, uh, you have an official page? Uh, oh, I've got my Facebook page. I guess you can message me on my Facebook page, which is Cal Wilson on Facebook. Yep. Or um, you can tweet me at Calbo, C-A-L-B-O, on Twitter. Yeah. So, me. yeah, t- and and send some through and we'll, yeah, and we'll yeah. discuss we'll them for you. you. And then make yeah. you feel better about the things that you feel a little bit of shame of over. Absolutely. Oh, we're, we're here to make people feel better yeah. in these crazy times. Uh, we can't hug each other, but we can talk about hugging each other. Yeah, we can intellectually give a little cuddle. <laughs> An intellectual mind cuddle. Yeah, it's fine. Uh, well, thanks for joining me, Cal, and uh, we'll speak thanks again soon. Um, you should start playing Pokemon Go on your walks. Bye. You know, when it comes to talking movies, I love chatting with Alexi Toliopoulos, the co-host of Total Reboot with the very funny Cam James. Alexi and I recently saw The King of Staten Island, and we figured we should record the chat we were going to have anyway about Judd Apatow's new movie. I like your tattoos. What are those numbers on your arm? Oh, that's uh, the date my dad died. He was a fireman. Died in a fire 17 years ago. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. Don't be. It's fine. Knock, knock. Who's there? Not your dad. (laughs) You can't focus on Scott anymore, honey. He's 24 years old, Marjorie. Let that fucking bird fly, please. Don't worry, Mom. I know your daughter got smart and went to college and abandoned us. But I'm still here. I'm going to be here forever. Yeah. I want to become a real tattoo artist. Your work is mad and consistent. Obama ain't right. Oh, I love your tattoos. This is my favorite. I've been dating someone for a little while now. The first guy you date in 17 years is a fireman just like that? You don't think that's weird? You're going to have to pull your weight a little more around here. Maybe help Ray get his kids to school. Kelly, do you know him? He's a new friend. You okay? You know, you can tell me. I'm okay. Oh, I trained her in the car. She's not going to break. Do you ever think about putting on the jacket? Why would you even ask me that? What's wrong with being a fireman? It's fine if you don't have kids, because you don't know if you're going to come home or not, and then your kids are fucked up. You make everyone around you feel crazy. People are normal, then they hang out with you, and then they're fucking Jack Nicholson in The Shining or something. I gotta tell my mom you tried to drown me. To the above ground pool, you're like fucking eight feet tall. Now, let me tell you something. Your dad was a hero. And heroes are necessary. And they should be allowed to have families. So the other night I ended up accidentally watching free-to-air television and uh, because I was watching the Blu-ray of Batman Begins and the, it turned off and it was free-to-air television and then suddenly it was Interstellar. And I was like, well, I'm, I'm watching all the Nolan movies for this podcast, so I don't need to watch this now and I own it and I've seen it heaps. But it was just before Matt Damon goes insane mm. and McConaughey has to dock the endurance that's uh, been damaged by Damon's uh, carry-ons. And, I, and, and then I ended up watching the rest of the movie. And I was wondering uh, what, what scene from a movie, if you're flicking around, that you own, like you own this movie, mm. 
But if you just see it, even on free-to-air television, with annoying adverts and a, and a little seven mate in the fucking corner, you'll still watch. <laughs> Whoa, that is a good question. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm trying to think of, like, movies that I just find, like, infinitely watchable that I will just, like, I can get sucked in by. And... Um, I feel like it would be have to be something like Brian De Palma because Brian De Palma right. is like one of those filmmakers where it's like the scenes and the filmmaking of the scenes is exquisite where you're you're kind of drawn in by the tension that he builds and I think the one that would really do it for me is um there's this scene in The Untouchables that's like towards the end where yep. it's like the it's a kind of it's a it's inspired by like Battleship Potemkin of like the yeah. the stairs, and it's like at this grand this grand train station, and it's Andy Garcia and Kevin Costner, and this woman with this baby carriage just falling down the stairs, and it's this shootout. I think kind of any scene actually from The Untouchables is one that would really get me to stick around. That was the first film that popped into my head. Um, I. Respect that so much. Do you do you know my love of the Untouchables? I don't. I think maybe we've mentioned it in passing, but it was one of those movies that, as a kid or a teenager, that I yeah. saw that was like such a window into like you know more adult cinema that really stuck with me. Ah oh, man, th- th- that is insane. That is exactly what I was about to say. It was my it was my bridging movie that mm. took me away from you know like. Good films, but, you know, blockbusters and, you know, comedies and that kind of stuff. And from The Untouchables, I go into the Godfather movies. I go into Miller's Crossing, you know, Mm. stuff like that. I'm a a big fan of The the Untouchables to the extent that when it came out on Beta, that's right, we had a Beta, (laughs) I think I spent like $109 on a copy of it because they were so hard to get. I reckon in totality over the years, that's probably close to the amount I've spent on Untouchables on DVD and Blu-ray as the yeah. format evolves. <laughs> Just keep updating it. And because, uh, you know, perfect Sean Connery, didn't know Kevin Costner at that point, And Costner mm. is underrated in that film because in many ways he has the least interesting Yeah, he's character. the boring character. Yeah, he's the good guy, you know. And... Uh, and had never seen Andy Garcia before, and the first time that he speaks to Sean Connery and they have that, it's better than you, you stinking Irish pig. Oh, yeah, I like him. (laughs) All of that bit is unbelievable. And uh, that scene Andy Garcia is so sexy in that movie, my God. He is sexy. And also that the trailer, which was what inspired me to see the film, where it's interspersed with, uh, you know, you have that Ennio Morricone music at the beginning, but then the second or the last third of the trailer is Mm. interspersed with the opera of Pagliacci. And I was like, what is this? (laughs) I had never seen anything like it and had never really taken any notice of uh, opera before. Yeah. I mean, it's a great scene. Anything from that. My other option was American Pie. Probably any scene from American yeah. Pie. Uh, I've had many Same. fond memories of watching that on free-to-air TV. And uh, I, anything like that that's a funny comedy, that's a bit horny, will always get me on board. Yeah, you must. Uh, I think they're doing a, a Mike Myers uh, 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 Austin Powers run this week on Seven Mate. Oh, really? Which I only know Far because out. of the adverts amongst uh, Interstellar. 
<laughs> well, hopefully the Mike Czech Republic gets a little bump of uh, new migrants during the <laughs> during the next week or so. Absolutely, that's where that's where the love of it lives. In case people listening to this do not realise it, go over quickly. Uh, but uh, funnily enough, we were uh, going to talk about something else. Uh, we, we were going to discuss the movie The King of Staten Island. Uh, for anyone who hasn't seen it, uh, it stars Pete Davidson, who plays the character Scott, a mid-twenties man-child who has been dealing with a severe case of arrested development since his firefighter father died. While Pete's sister heads off to college, Scott is left behind. Uh, sorry, I've just the actor's name and the character's name. While Scott's <laughs> sister heads off to college, Scott is left behind and his exhausted ER nurse mother, played by Marissa Tomei, uh, and his childhood friend Kelsey, uh, played by Bill Powley, he's driving them both crazy. Uh, his inability to grow up with his mum, his inability to commit to the on-again, off-again relationship with his friend. And when Scott's mother begins dating uh, another firefighter named Ray, Bill Burr, it sets off a chain of events that will force Scott to confront his grief and maybe, just maybe, begin to grow up a little. And uh, I have to ask you, are you across Pete Davidson's work? Because I, I, I know of him, but I've never really seen him in anything before. Yeah, I am. Uh, I've, I'm, of course, uh, very familiar with him from his uh, pretty, like, breakout run on Saturday Night Live. But before yeah. that, I was a fan of his stand-up because I had seen him on... Dave Attell had this show. Um, it was just, like, on Comedy Central or something like that. But it was a show, a stand-up showcase show. And it hadn't been, right. like, a traditional stand-up showcase show on TV for a while I can't remember what it was called, but it was really fun. I love the way that it was filmed and it was kind of celebrating. He was the MC and it was a show celebrating like comedians like him, like dirtier road comics, like people that you would consider for us, like their comics, like working comics. And Pete Davidson was featured on like one of the episodes of that show. And it was the first time I'd seen him. He would have been like 19 or something. I remember just going like, this kid's really cool. This guy's really cool. He's a few years younger than me. And um, I remember being really impressed by him and just always having him in my mind since then as like being like, oh, that's a cool new up and coming comic that will probably get somewhere eventually. And it's been crazy that like, just what, that was probably like four or five maybe six years ago that I saw that show that like, wow, since then he's really, he's blown up. He's in a freaking like big blockbuster style comedy right now and was huge on SNL. He was engaged to Ariana Grande, but I didn't see his stand-up special. I saw like trailers for his Netflix special and not being into it at all. And then like reports back from like my colleagues and stuff going like, it's not really worth watching whatsoever. So I don't know. I do like Pete Davidson. I think I would classify myself as a Pete fan. And so was this movie uh, like for you as a fan, a a natural progression from where you first saw him to getting to this point, or is this a bit of a jump that you weren't expecting? Um, I think from back then it's unexpected, but like seeing his, 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 uh, moves forward in the industry, it makes sense. Especially like the other comedians that I was really into, like when I was starting and set up were like Pete Holmes and Amy Schumer, who both have had like that Judd Apatow, <laughs> that Judd Apatow autobiographical story, uh, adaptation right. as well. So it, it makes almost total sense. 
Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, and you enjoyed the film, didn't you? Yeah, I did. I'm a big Judd Apatow fan. So I think yeah. um, for me, Judd Apatow, I've liked almost everything that he's done, but he uh, really represents to me, um, like, obviously when I was coming of age, he was what defined comedy at the time. Like his voice right. became like the dominant voice in cinematic comedy and then TV comedy as well um, with... Uh, you know, starting with like the 40 year old virgin and stuff. And that was like his, his career of becoming like this Albert Brooks and James L Brooks, uh, yeah. like big comedy director. And for me kind of represented, cause I was familiar with him before and familiar with all the stuff that he was doing with before, uh, that big breakout success of like knocked up and 40 year old virgin that, along with like comics like Zach Galifianakis and like David Cross, who were like the alternative comedy for me becoming the mainstream. And I thought yeah. that that's like why I've, I guess I'll always have like this love for like whatever Judd Apatow is doing, because like he was that one person that I f was there with for that movement as a fan. Yes. Yeah, he's uh, yeah definitely he's had, he's had a lasting impact on uh, on comedy and uh, you know a certain era of movie making. I was going to draw a comparison with uh, James L. Brooks as well. Like mm. it feels uh, very much like he's you know taking that baton and, and running uh, forward with it. Uh, I actually got to interview him once. And it was one of those oh, really? ones like it was just in a hotel room. Yeah, you know, and he was so. You know when you sometimes meet people and you walk away going, you know, I liked that guy before and I spent like, what, 12 minutes all up and he was so delightful. You felt like like he was just really into talking about the craft and he was exactly oh, cool. what you wanted him to be, right? Yeah. Like a bit of a nerd, having some, you know, obviously wanting to be asked things that people don't ask about the craft so then he can uh, extrapolate on it and he was, uh, I found him to be quite adorable. Um, the, I, so I, this story is semi-autobiographical, but I was looking up some stuff before we chatted and, uh, I knew that his father, Pete Davidson's father was a firefighter who really died, uh, in, in proper life. But, um, it was during the September 11 attacks, which I didn't know. And I'm mm. curious, why do you think that detail was left out of the movie? Yeah, this was something that I knew before and watching the movie, I was surprised that that wasn't part of it. Um, yeah. I think that part of it, well, I was watching with my partner and I said to her, I was like, oh, I do think that they would have changed it because, you know, there's a key scene earlier in the film when we kind of learn that his father's died and it's through his friends teasing him about it. I feel yeah. like that if it was connected to like this catastrophic event that is like uh, this touchstone in history, that uh, it would be seen as really untasteful, even though that probably could be like a true autobiographical thing that his friends do make fun of him for his dad dying. But I think if it was yeah. like this like large event like that it would be it would be harder to watch for audience members without conjuring yeah. like without like it being the same thing I, I, I yeah i was surprised by that detail being changed but um i don't know i can I reckon, accept it yeah i reckon you're right it's so funny isn't it uh, mm. as an idea his father died in uh, as a firefighter in a fire we can make jokes about it it was in september 11 well that crossed the line yeah i really but think hey, that's it yeah, I think you're right too. It's like, hey man, his father still died. <laughs> it's, it, it's awful either way. Um, I feel like this was possibly the perfect movie to see at this time in life when everything's a little bit shit. 
And uh, did did you feel kind of relieved to be watching a movie like this at at this point? Yeah, I mean, it's especially because like, you know, there's not too many movies coming out. And so for one to be like, it's kind of comforting comedy film, I really enjoyed, yeah. especially like I, I mean, I love Judd Apatow. I rewatched Funny People just the other day. And yeah. I think that there's something about like how, you know, it's a criticism he gets how long his movies are. But I think there's something about the way that he makes comedies that has like this really comfortable sit quality with them where you sit with them. Right. You kind of live through like the eyes of someone else for a while. You bring into, you're brought into their world, their perspective. There's kind of like a loungy quality to them that I really enjoy. Oh, you've glitched for a second there. Oh, have I? Well, um, yep. I was just saying that, um, that there's a loungy quality to Judd Apatow's films that I feel oh, yeah. really comfortable and uh, really enjoy that about them. And, yeah. you know, a lot of his films are perhaps too long. Like, I think Funny People feels like one of the longest movies of all time. But there's something about that that kind of brings, like, a bit of authenticity or reality to the character's experience. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I Look, I, I have to be honest, I've really enjoyed every Apatow movie I've seen, and I've also felt they were at least 15 minutes too long. Mm. But uh, maybe what you're pointing out is correct, which is to get that authenticity, you do have to kind of sit in scenes a little bit longer or a little bit, you know, past their expiry date to a certain extent. Mm. Um, I always thought that the major flaw with Funny People was not the movie, but was the fact that in the trailer they told you that he gets better. Mm, I don't really remember the trailers, so... Oh, I, I remember the trailer coming out and going, oh, this looks fascinating, and then it's, oh, he gets, you know, he's dying, and then it's, oh, but now he's going to live. And so then you're sitting there through the movie going, when's he going to get better? And it's like, <laughs> <laughs> I always wondered, if you hadn't told me that, that should have been the twist that you didn't see coming, mm. which then propels the second half. But anyway, uh, <laughs> just some... Quicker questions for you. Um, is it just me or is Marissa Tomei getting a nice resurgence at the moment? Like, I thought she was fantastic in this. Yeah, I, I mean, I love Marissa Tomei. Probably one of my yeah. favourite actors. Uh, I like, I, I, I don't know, it's one of those things where it's like I've always liked what she's had for her career, except, yeah. you know, when it's like those bigger roles that pop, like, I guess stuff like um, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead or The Wrestler, like about a decade ago. And um, I don't know, there's something about her where it's like it's weird that she's kind of, or disappointing maybe that she's like got these mum roles now. And I feel like this is a good one because there's something really interesting about it and the way that she, because her playing it's interesting. But um, I don't know, it's just like I I wish, I want to see more movies where she's the lead. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's funny, the uh, the comic book writer, Ed Brubaker, created a series called Velvet, which mm. was about, uh, you know, like a, a woman who's a spy, but who's in her mid to late 40s. And uh, basically, the inspiration for it at the time was, he loved Diane Lane, and was sick of her being in Mum wow. Rose, and, and yeah. was like, but no one's going to make that TV show, or make that movie. So he made a comic with uh, Steve Epting that was brilliant and it's you feel like yeah I could see Marissa like like it's kind of cool that she's Aunt May but it's also she would have been better as you know an older Black Widow type character as well right 
Yeah, exactly. I, I, I think she's just fabulous. So whenever yeah. she pops up, I'm excited. But I know it's just I, I want her to be the lead of things. She's the best. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, I'd never seen Belle Powley before, and I thought she was a real standout. As oh, Kelsey. my God. Hamo, you have to watch uh, Diary of a teenage girl which is like her okay. breakout performance and uh I, I i remember i saw that in the cinemas and i absolutely loved it and yeah. i don't think i've seen her in anything since and as soon as she popped up in this i was like oh thank god i love her right. so much she's so brilliant in this movie kind of playing like this this thing that could like be such a nothing character but because it's it's expertly played by her it's like this kind of put upon friends with benefits character that refuses to be like this manic pixie dream girl to yeah to pete davidson's character and i think that the way that she kind of plays the com like the comedic beats in this is so like well naturalized and so realistic that she like there's never a false moment with her at all and I'm just, oh, I'm so happy to see her in something again. I really think that she should be like one of those next big stars. And this kind of made oh, me yeah. excited that she's still out there doing stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Like if they made a spin off movie about her or mm. a spin off TV series about her character going to school, you know, believing in Staten Island, you yeah. know. I would, I would be totally in hanging out with her friends, you know. Yeah. I, I thought she was fantastic. She's so good that I want, like, the recut rom-com version of this movie where it's like a When Harry Met Sally where we see both sides of their lives <laughs> instead of it just yeah. being, like, a character study of Pete Davidson. <laughs> Scott, when Scott met uh, Kelsey, I'd yeah. be totally into that, yeah. I would love uh, it. I- uh, she was, yeah. She really, she really popped for me. And the other revelation was, I thought Bill Burr was fantastic. I think he. This movie is like an ascension to another level for him because I think he's Absolutely. always been a, obviously a great performer, but a very yeah. good actor. But to see him kind of pull stuff like this off and like kind of yeah. be like. Uh, not a leading character, but like a leading supporting character in this film, or like a true supporting role. I think that he is freaking brilliant in this movie. Yeah. And like the yeah. true standout, the way that he kind of like plays like these, these really, these like that he, cause he's so effortless with his comedy, Bill Burr, where he's just like a naturally uncompromisingly hilarious person. And so yeah. that he's playing dramatic moments with humor in this way. And the way that he's playing like kind of humorous, humorous moments with like a complete naturalism and reality to them as well. Um, yeah. and the way that he can kind of like change his energy throughout the scenes. I'm like, this is a, a real actor that we're seeing now, not just like a great stand up who's in movies because he's funny. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there was, you you kind of, it's so well played. I didn't quite have a read on him for a lot of the movie, which mm. I thought was really good. So you're a bit, you know, you kind of, you feel a bit sorry for him. You're on Scott's side. Yeah. You agree with Marissa Tomei. Then you get to know him a bit and you go, oh yeah, there was just lots of different flavors to a role that once again could have been one note. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I think that he's, I think he's brilliant in this movie. Uh, a few more, just a few more questions for you. Is this the most normal role Steve Buscemi has ever played? 
I think it might be the most normal role that he's ever played. I, I, it's a surprise to see him in this, but then, you know, his history being like a fireman as well. Yeah. You're like, oh, it makes total sense. It adds like an authenticity yeah. to it. He knows what he's doing in this situation. And, you know, I, I love Steve Buscemi in comedies, but it's mainly been like Adam Sandler movies. So it's kind of fun to see him in like this more grounded, naturalistic comedy. Yeah, I thought he was like, it's not a, uh, it's nothing but a compliment to say, wow, he was just so normal. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so grounded and, you know, especially the the scene where he's telling stories towards the end and you go, oh yeah, I feel like I know that guy. I've hung out with that guy at <laughs> yeah, places. Exactly. Um, and I'm curious, were you as fascinated with Maud Apatow's deep voice as I was? Oh, <laughs> I, I like didn't even notice. Was- I was totally obsessed with her. I thought she was really good, by the way, but I I felt like her voice was like a register lower than everybody's. (laughs) (laughs) You know, when something just weirdly sticks out to you. But um, I thought she was really good, too. Yeah, it's cool seeing her become like like an adult actor uh, from being like a wonderful standout child star of like Apatow's other movies. Um, yeah, I think that she's really great and seeing her in this and Euphoria as well. I think that she's like, I think she's like really good, legit. Yeah. Yeah. She's got, she's got good chops. Um, well, I'll finish up with this. I'll, I'll tell you, I, overall, I really, uh, got into this movie a lot mm. and, uh, you know, I totally recommend people to check it out. I'm guessing it'll go to Netflix pretty soon. I think it's got a limited run in Australia. I'm, you know, it's hard to tell with everything that's going yeah. on. I uh, think but- that if you're not in Victoria and you feel safe going to the cinemas in other states and you want like a fun comedy, this is yeah. this, like a comedy with a lot of heart as well, like the way that Judd yeah. Apatow's films always do. It's hard to really go wrong with this one. I, I, I love those man-child comedies that Judd Apatow really pushed forward with. And I think this is a really interesting execution of it because there's this thing in this movie that I just like... I personally loved, like, I, I found it really, like, an interesting new take on this man-child thing that Judd Apatow put forward in that every 15 to 20 minutes of this movie, there's something that happens that feels like it should be the inciting incident for this film, where it's like, yes. oh, okay, now this is what this movie is. This guy's found motivation in this way, whether it's, like, walking his um, Bill Burr's kids to school or whether it's, like, um, f- whether it's, like, a, his friends and he, like, having this weird like kind of gang drug deal thing or whether it's him going to the firehouse it always feels like that every 15 20 minutes is an exciting incident that's going to push him and motivate him to become a grown-up or like to grow as a person to kind of like initiate his character arc um and the forward progression of that but then it doesn't there's always another one coming that kind of stops and starts that and i think that works so well for this movie because he is like this person that uh, we learn like has ADHD and it's like a kind of like he's great character flaw. And, um, and I think that doing it in this way, feels like, it feels like a really fresh take on, on this exact character of like yeah. why they kind of get stuck and why they don't feel the motivation to move forward. I hadn't really seen it done exactly like this before. And I thought it was like a really good screenwriting device that I was really impressed by. Yeah, it was it was kind of like watching someone's life with uh, someone else controlling the remote. Mm. And, oh, let's go to this bit now. Oh, let's go to this bit now. Oh, you know what? Let's go back to that bit. And once you kind of pick up on the rhythm of that, it really feels like it informs his way that he views the world and experiences totally. it. 
Yeah. Yes. And I think yeah. that's something that I really, really dug about this movie. And it felt like um, it was Apatow playing with his his like set of tools in a different way that I really, really enjoyed as a, an Apatow fan. Yeah. And I found the, uh, the not giving anything away, I found the, the, the actual final shot uh, strangely moving, and mm. uh, I felt really good after seeing that 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 spot. I was like, "Oh yeah, right. yeah, that's a nice ending." Well yeah. done. Yeah, <laughs> with that Kid Cudi song, really good. Yeah, it was great. Uh, Alexi, thank you very much. What do you have uh, coming up uh, that people should be checking out? Uh, on Total Reboot, we are still doing our Locked in the Cage mega series talking about Nicolas Cage. We're doing The Wicker Man <laughs> in the next couple of weeks, which will bring us to a close. But we've already yeah. got our next mega series lined up that is all about another beloved actor. And there is a certain movie that is not a reboot or remake that will tie us into that other actor. We'll be moving off from Nicolas Cage and facing onto a whole new star. And I won't really talk too much about it because it is it is a tease. Oh yeah, and I'm uh, oh, but, oh, and I've forgotten if if John Cazale was still alive, who would you like him to have been in the King of Staten Island? It's the most obvious answer in the world because he is like the one for one translation of who he is. Is Steve Buscemi? Steve Buscemi was yeah. the heir to John Cazale's throne as like the <laughs> beloved character actor. It's uh, you That's know what if, I was thinking. Yeah, every time it will always be Steve Buscemi. Whatever Steve Buscemi does, he's even in the documentary we talked about last week. Yeah, he, and um, there's there's three character actors that are in it. There's Philip Seymour Hoffman, Sam Rockwell, and uh, Steve Buscemi. And I'm like none of these people ever met John Cazale, but these are the character actors you want to see talk about the greatest character actor of all time. Yeah, I even when I was watching the movie, not even knowing that we were going to do this uh, chat about it, I was sitting there going, it's like he's got John Cazale's hair. Yeah, they have the same hairline, <laughs> they are the same energy, they're the same person. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll start our uh, own uh, ongoing five-part segment up there, Cazale. <laughs> I would love that. Uh, thanks once again, Alexi. That was brilliant. My pleasure. And that finally brings us to the end of this podcast. As you can see, I am already three podcasts in struggling to keep to my self-inflicted rule of keeping this shit short. So I'm sorry about that, but... It's all quality, right? So, you know, what are you going to do? I'm not going anywhere. Uh, a big thank you to Cal Wilson, Limo, and Alexi Toliopoulos for their contributions to the podcast. If you're enjoying the new format and the podcast, please give us a nice rating on whichever social media platform you're using to listen to us. Also, feel free to share Big Squid with any like-minded friends who you think might Enjoy hanging out with all of us and, and talking about the same kind of stuff. I'm taking my time expanding my work back into the podcast world, so any new listeners are appreciated. I have blogs and short stories over at justinhamilton.com.au. The short stories are written and designed for you to be able to read when you're on a bus or, you know, just killing time, waiting to see a doctor, etc. So if uh, you're in the mood for something to read, uh, please feel free to swing by and check it out. Also, if you want to say hi, you can write to me there. You can write under one of the blogs or one of the short stories or head over to Facebook where we have an open page for Big Squid and a private page. 
anyone can join the private page. It's just a place where we can talk about the shows and movies that we're into and we can talk uh, with spoilers so we're not ruining it for anyone else. But uh, you're more than welcome to join both if you would like. Uh, remember, if you're down Orange Way, pop into Factory Espresso, find Nick and Ruby and give them a hearty bingo for a free coffee and mug. They're good people and you'll be wrapped that you popped in. Heck, if it's not too busy, say to Nick, hey, I love the movies Creed and Creed 2 and then sit back and have one of the most joyful chats you'll ever have about movies. Uh, I'll be back next week, of course. It's my podcast. I'm not going anywhere. God, that'd be weird if next week it was hosted by someone else. Like, God, imagine if I got sacked from my own podcast. That's some low self-esteem shit right there, isn't it? Uh, but I will definitely be back. And I'm bringing at least Ben Elwood with me. We are going to be covering uh, the next movie in Christopher Nolan's oeuvre. It's Memento. So that's a lot of fun. Such a good movie to go back to. So if you're thinking that you'd uh, like to have a listen and maybe you haven't seen the movie recently, give it a rewatch or just listen to the podcast and see if it inspires you to go back and check it out. But oh, it's really good. It still really holds up. Uh, it was a, a really fun rewatch. And uh, I'm sure we'll have uh, a couple of other guests and surprises for you as well. And finally, since we were talking about these foolish things earlier, I'm going to leave you this week with a quote from Brian Ferry. Other bands wanted to wreck hotel rooms. Roxy Music wanted to redecorate them. Love it. What a great fucking quote. Get out there, people, and redecorate the world. Until then. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. 
That's stamps.com code program.